Well, uh, I want to thank uh, a lot of you for kind of being willing to dress up. I see Celtics over there. Yeah, somebody, a big fan there. And, and what, what else do we have? The Bears? Yeah, Bears fans. Eagles. You know, I was thinking we did an Eagles song. Was that, was that a Super Bowl thing today or not? Okay, yeah, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, uh, we're here because we need to be here. Because left to our own devices, we sort of get drawn so everything is about us and how it affects us or what we've got to do or to make our lives perfect or to make everybody else around us line up to what we think where they should be. Lord, we, we need to be here because hearing your word, being with your people, praising you, Lord, we want to... We, we are here today. We need this reorientation you give us. So, Lord, do that. Turn us around. Get us pointed in the right direction because you are our true north. You are the, you are the guiding star for us, and we, we need you. So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, pour out, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us today. Uh, move among us. Draw us into this life and, and channel us into this, into this uh, kingdom of God that you are establishing on the earth. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, now, before I get into today's message, I want to tell you about a series that we're going to be starting in two weeks uh, called Bless Five Ways to Love Our Neighbors. Now, I've, I learned about this about a year ago, and so I've been practicing it, been starting it in my own life, and I'm I'm really eager to begin to share this with you. Uh, my hope is that this was not going to be just another series where we, we get through it. Yeah, that was a good series. Let's go on to the next one. This is going to be a, this is going to be a, a, a new step for this church. Uh, it, this, this series is going to challenge us. It's going to uh, really uh, stretch us. But I think also as we do, we're going to find that the more we get into it, the more we begin to put it into practice, the more rewarding it is. So we have a blessed guide for you. Um, it, uh, most of our faith groups are going to be going through this guide as their group uh, source and walk them through that. But even if you're not in a group right now, I hope you'll pick up one of these guys. We've got them back out at the uh, Connection Center. And we'd love for you to have one. You can kind of go through it along with us uh, individually. Or maybe say, grab a friend or two or three and say, let's, hey, let's just do this together. Let's make this our, our spiritual exercise during Lent. Now, today we're going to go into, again, what it means to be a disciple in our series Flawed but Following. And one of the things I've been mentioning is that whenever I read about Jesus in, in one of the biographies about him in the Bible, one of the things that, that I can't help but notice is that Jesus' first disciples uh, weren't really very good at it. Have you noticed that? Especially early on. Uh, it also says that Jesus, he spent the whole night praying before he went to uh, pick out his top 12. Because I'm sure he's thinking, okay, Father, I need you to, to guide me so that they, these are the right 12 and then I can't help but wonder, after a while, he looks at these 12 guys. And they are cynical and confused and bumbling and distracted. And, you know, they just, they just, don't, get it. They just don't get it. 
And there are times when he just looks up and says, is this the best you could get me? But you know, in some ways, I find that encouraging. If Jesus' disciples back then were slow to get it, and they're with him all the time, if they keep, if they keep reverting back to their old ways, maybe there's hope for me. This is also the fifth Sunday that I brought up this verse. It's John 8, verse 31. Let's throw it up here on the screen. And I wonder how many of you by now can fill in the blank. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really what? My disciples. You know it. Uh, and, and so to hold on to his teaching just means that we keep learning. We keep following. We keep at it. So, if you can claim that today, I invite you to repeat after me, loud and strong, I'm a disciple, flawed but following. You see, what I really want is for each one of us to claim that as our identity. More important than our identity of our age, race, gender, more important than our identity of political preference or team loyalty I, I belong to him Jesus has saved me he claimed me as his own I'm flawed but I keep following okay let's open our Bibles now if you didn't bring a Bible grab that pew Bible in the rack in front of you and let's turn to Mark chapter 10 uh, we'll start with verse 37 and it's on page 1014 in these Bibles and uh as I always like to say, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home to read, then just take this pew Bible, tuck it under your arm when you go, and keep it. We've got more. We'll stick them in. And if you're wondering, well, where do I start reading the Bible? You know, today we're in Mark's Gospel. That would be a great place to start. Of the four biographies about Jesus in the Bible that we call Gospels, this one was written first. And it's also the shortest. So it might be a really good introduction for you. Okay, verse 37. Uh, here's the request from the brothers James and John that Marilyn read for us a little bit ago. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, what glory are they talking about? James and John believe that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to take his place as king and restore glory to the throne of David. David was the king a thousand years before. That they want... Uh, to be Jesus' royal advisors. You know, everywhere Jesus goes, they are right there beside him. Mom's going to be so proud. Right? Yeah. And of course, this move makes all kind of sense from their point of view. James and John plus Peter are Jesus' inner circle of three that's part of the twelve. But they think, hey, there's three of us, but there's only two spots next to Jesus, Right? One on the right, one on the left. These palace posts are within our grasp. Verse 38, Jesus says, You don't really know what you're asking. Which I think was really kind of gentle of him to respond that way because he really could have said, How many times do we need to go over this, guys? Okay, back up a couple of chapters. Jesus, uh, in chapter 8, Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer and be rejected and killed and rise on the third day. And Peter rebukes him and said, for saying such a ridiculous idea, terrible thing to say. So Jesus explains, well, 
If, you, if you're going to follow me where I'm going, it's not about conquering. It's about self-denial. It's about taking up your cross. It's about even giving up your life. Then the next chapter, chapter 9, Jesus says again, he's going to be killed and rise on the third day, and they still don't get it. But they don't want to ask questions. You don't want to look stupid. And right after that, guess what happens? The disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Sounds like a sports fan, right? So much for self-denial. So Jesus he gives them an object lesson. Maybe they'll get this. And he puts, a, he puts a child in front of them. And he says, okay, if you can give up all kind, your self-importance and, and self-centeredness and you can welcome a child, then that's like welcoming me. Okay, you go to the next chapter, chapter 10. Jesus tells them a third time. That, he's, that what's going to happen. Uh, he's going to be condemned by the Jewish authorities, handed over to the Gentile rulers. He'll be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed, and then on the third day, rise. Over and over again, he tells me he's not going to Jerusalem to conquer it. He's going to sacrifice himself, but they don't get it. Their hearts are so set on, on the trophy of power you know, they, they want uh, prestige, fame, acclaim. And that, that's why Jesus' words about sacrifice, suffering, serving, just psh, fly over their heads. Today, I've got one big thing to say. Kind of the, the summary of what today is about. And I hope you'll write it down in your bulletin or record it with your thumbs on your phone or do something. Take it home. Talk about it at home. Pray through it. Talk about it in your group. The depth of our grasping greed, our craving to be admired and desired, remains hidden from us. By God's grace, we gradually become aware of it and let it die. When, when we lived in Gothenburg, Nebraska, between the driveway and our house was an old yucca plant. Some of you are having sympathy for us right now. And this, this, this plant, it'd be, it was well past its prime. Uh, it, was, it just didn't look too good anymore. It was kind of a yucky yucca plant, if you want to say that. You know, those are long, spiny leaves that's sticking out, and they, they orig really originated in hot, dry climates. Uh, our yucca had become overgrown, and we were ready to get rid of it, so I did kind of the, the farm boy thing, you know, and I hacked it down. Next year, it just came up hardier than ever. So, I got out my spade. I started digging. I dug probably a foot and a half down in that taproot. I'm trying to dig out that taproot. Thought, well, maybe that'll do it. Next year, came back. Yucca plant's hard to get rid of. And it's the same with our grasping greed. The root runs deeper than we imagined. And just when we think we've, we've dug it out, it pops back out to the surface. Then in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus asks James and John this question. Can you drink the cup I drink? Now, he's not talking about communion here, okay? In the Old Testament, drinking the cup is sometimes a symbol of receiving God's righteous wrath against sin. You've got to remember, God's wrath 
there's always a link somewhere to his love. I know sometimes it's hard to see it, but if you, if you look deeply at the, at the whole story of Scripture, there, there's always a link between God's wrath and his love. And, and the good news that we find in the New Testament is that God so loved the world that he sent his son, and in that way God drinks his own cup of righteous wrath for our sake. And then he goes on to talk about baptism, and, and this isn't about our kind of baptism. It's a symbol of death and being buried. It's about Jesus laying down his life and being buried for us. Well, James and John say, yeah, we're ready for that. Are they? No. Because, you know, when it finally comes on that night where Jesus is arrested, you know, they run away just like all the others. They're not ready, at least not yet. Okay, let's say those words on the screen together, shall we? The depth of our grasping greed, our craving to be admired and desired, remains hidden from us. By God's grace, we gradually become aware of it and let it die. That is the life of a disciple. That is what spiritual growth looks like. As disciples, we admit we are grasping, but there is also grace. By God's gracious kindness, we begin letting go of our craving to be tops first, right, best. We, we don't have to be in charge, in control, get our way. And that's when we start to serve as Jesus served. Okay, you still have your Bible open? Follow with me, verses 42 through 44. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And of course, that's kind of what James and John wanted to do, right? They wanted to lord it over the other disciples. We're number one and two. You guys are down below. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. That goes against human nature, doesn't it? Human nature wants to step on people and step over people so that we can get what we want. Get our way. Jesus said, that's not how we're doing it here. We're going to step down and wait on others. All right, now let's all read verse 45 together, shall we? All of us. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus stepped down to serve. And when in the Bible it talks about ransom, it means that he gives his life as a substitute to set us free. That's sort of the core of, that, of the meaning of that. Uh, the ransom means that he, he, he gives his life as a substitute to set us free. But because of our grasping greed, because of our deeply rooted sin, you and I, we deserve God's righteous wrath, but it's always tied to his great love, and Jesus took that wrath. He took your place so that you can be set free. 
You know, one thing I've come to realize, though, is that that's not going to sound like good news until you come to realize the depth of that grasping greed in you, the depth of that root of sin, and how stained it, you are. Until you're, you're shocked at what you see inside yourself. The, the selfish self-promotion. I, I came across a story recently by Mary Poplin. She was a young university professor fascinated by exotic spiritualities. Uh, she figured she could be good without God, didn't need God. She attended paranormal seminars, collected mysterious crystals, those kind of things. She went to workshops where they they bent spoons and practiced hypnosis on each other. Mary Poplin fancied herself as a free spirit, uh, seeking happiness, self-fulfillment, and freedom from all restraints. But there were brief moments where she caught a glimpse of who she really was. She said, I was not growing freer. My heart was growing harder my emotions darker, my mind more confused, but I was, she says, I was unable to admit this candidly. At age 41, Mary had a dream, a vivid dream. She, she awoke remembering every sight, sound, color, thought, feeling. She was in a long line of people wearing gray robes, marching slowly, forward and then as she began to approach the destination see she saw a yellow light and there were she saw the the disciples at, in in the scene of the last supper but Jesus wasn't with them Jesus was there at the front of the line receiving people and when she got to Jesus she looked in his eyes, and every cell of her body, she recognized that it was filled with filth. And she wept, and she fell at his feet. And then Jesus reached out and touched her shoulders. She said, I felt perfect peace. That dream set in motion a new journey for Mary Poplin. She, she began to see that while she had been pretending to be good, inside her was filled with something that was dark, evil, poisonous to her soul. For Mary Poplin, the depth of her grasping, her craving, had remained hidden from her. But by God's grace, she gradually became aware of it so that it could die. Mary began to read the Bible. She attended a Christian conference. She even visited a Benedictine monastery. One Sunday, she was sitting in a very small Methodist church where her mother had grown up, and the pastor invited the congregation to communion. And when the time came forward, when, it, when the time came to go forward, she prayed, God, 
if you are real, come and get me. She said, suddenly I felt the same peace that I had felt in the dream. And that's when Mary Poplin discovered the grace of God's forgiveness. For some of the things that she had done, she, she, she experienced that, that cleansing of forgiveness and being set free right away. There were other things that that was harder for her to experience. She, she believed in God's forgiveness, and yet to actually feel it, to embrace it, experience it was harder. But she continued to lean into that grace. I'd like to invite Angie Washington to come on up. Uh, some of you have met Angie. Um, she has uh, been coming here for a couple years or so. And uh, so, Angie, thank you for being willing to do this. Thank yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, are we, yeah, I think it's on. Okay. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, let's pump it up just a little bit there, Ben. I'll Thanks. I'll speak up a little bit, Okay. Too. So anyway, uh, if um, tell us a little bit about, because a lot of people don't know you. Kind of introduce yourself to us. Sure. My name is Angie Washington, uh, born and raised here in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I'm the mother of five. My eldest is a freshman down in Lincoln at Nebraska Wesleyan, um, and I have... Um, also an 18-year-old who's a senior at Millard South, and then a 16-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 10-year-old. So, got oh, my hands full. <laughs> I guess so. Um, and so, you know, we've been talking about kind of in our lives, there was a combination of grasping and grace. How did you, how did you begin to, where did that grasping kind of come into your life? Where did you see that as you look back? Sure. Um, I grew up as a Christian, and I felt as though I was a good Christian. I, um, since I was raised in a Christian home, and, and I thought about Christianity all the time, and, and I considered, like, the best Christians to be martyrs. Um, but seeing as you can't choose to be a martyr particularly, I felt like the second best Christian would be a missionary. Mm. And so I said to myself, I'm going to be a missionary because I'm going to be the best. I'm oh. going to be a wonderful Christian and do the missionary thing. Right there at right the there top. Right there at the top. Right there. Right yeah. there. Um, and so I, we, we set our lives in, in motion to become missionaries and actually moved down to Bolivia, which is and in so South you're America. And so married by this time? You've uh, yep. got kids, right? Married kids, got our family started, yeah. Um, and actually lived 13 years in Bolivia as a missionary. Wow. What did you do? A uh, little bit of everything, really. Uh, kept ourselves uber busy, <laughs> as they say. Um, had a church that we had founded, grew to be about 200 members, had uh, Bible schools that we started, 60 uh -huh. of them throughout South America. Wow. We had a um, K through 12 Christian school that we started. We also started an orphanage that served 53 children. Um, and we owned a bowling alley as well to try a to bowling keep things. Alley? Why, <laughs> what, what is, we were just, we were grasping. Okay. We were. I've, uh, I had in my heart just the feeling, going to save the world, going to make my life count, going to make a difference. And uh, we were doing as much as we possibly could. So in some ways that's good, but in yes. other ways it kind of became all about 
you or what? Well, well I don't doubt that? that God did good things yeah. through us, and I don't doubt that the missionary career is a wonderful path for, for people to take. And it became relevant. Uh, it became evident to me that things began to fall apart in about 2010. And that's the grace part that you were kind of leading yeah. into, I think, is when I realized I didn't have the ability to keep it all together, to be perfect and to make make it seem as though everything was fine. I lost that ability mm. um, when we adopted our youngest daughter, actually. Um, I thought, mother of four, got an orphanage going, I'm doing things right, I, I think maybe we could adopt a kid and do things great there too, and yeah. brought her into our lives, and I realized I couldn't. I, I, was, I was at a loss of how to connect, how to bond, things were how, not great. How old was she? She was two and a half okay. at the time, um, she's 10 now, but I had come to the point where I had to admit I needed help. And it, that, for me, was was very hard. I had, yeah. I've been one of those people that push away counseling, push away the idea of needing help because I had all together, supposedly. And I I had to realize I needed help. I needed somebody to step in. Which is hard to admit when you kind of see yourself as yes. right up here. As perfect, yeah. yeah. My greatest imperfection, I believe, is that I expected everybody around me to be able to attain perfection, starting with myself. I, I, yeah. I expected that of everybody. And so that was the beginning of? That was the beginning of my great unraveling. The great unraveling. The great unraveling, I call okay. it, in 2010, when, I, when I, everything I had woven together started to come apart. Um, financially, with my family, with the ministry, things just didn't work anymore starting in 2010 and that's when um, a few years later we decided to try and salvage some semblance of of a family and a marriage um, when we moved back about three years ago okay. yeah uh, because everything was just falling to pieces um, and um, yeah then it kept falling to pieces it what kept happened? falling apart one year after we moved back, um, Easter, after church, I gathered my children together in our living room, and my sister was there with me, and I told them their dad had moved out, and less than a year later, we were divorced, and he's still involved in their lives um, somewhat, but I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I had it all put together, and it just, little by little... So, came apart. so where, how have you been graced? Tell us about that. God's grace. Yeah. God's grace has been present in a more real way when I have felt most um, unworthy. When I would have said to myself, you are undeserving of any kind of help because you are just messed up. Um, I, that is when God's grace has been poured out more, more tangibly than ever before. I have three tattoos, uh, on my arm here. I have a butterfly, a dragonfly, and a queen bee. Uh, I got the queen bee the day I left Bolivia, and 
since then I've been studying about bees. Okay. Um, and I found out that bees actually cocoon. Um, we I know, didn't know that. we know butterflies cocoon, but bees actually cocoon. And what happens is when the queen bee lays that larvae into the cup, into the little hexagonal shape yeah. cup, the little worm goes in and gets capped over with the wax. What happens to that larvae is it completely liquefies. In the state of cocooning, it completely dissolves into bee soup, if you will, and reconstitutes into this bee that has legs and wings and eyes and a body. And I feel like the grace of God is the people that would come around me and cocoon me like that afternoon when I was there with my sister and my kids and we were just sobbing a mess, just crying. It was in those moments where I felt cocooned that the grace of God would meet me in my liquefied, disastrous state and reconstitute me. Wow. The people around me, they would just give me encouragement and peace and and tangible sustenance to whatever I was lacking in that moment, the grace of God would, would sustain me in that, in that moment. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? That's beautiful. It is amazing. Amazing grace. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing with us your story. And I, I hope, you know, some of you don't know, Angie, this will be your, your opportunity to say, I got to go get to know that woman. Yeah. So. We'll be at FaithLink, my kids and I. That's right. You're uh, helping me host FaithLink yes, today, right? Yes, yes. So would, after we worship, um, we'll do that. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Um, we, are, we are grasping people, and yet God doesn't give up on us. I've got grace for you. I've got plenty of grace for you. And today we get to experience that grace through this this gift we call Holy Communion. Um, And here we get to experience Jesus in a tangible way because we see it, we smell it, we feel it, we taste it, and we hear those words, the body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And no matter how deep our grasping sin runs, the grace of God runs deeper still. 